Welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. You are listening to the flagship audio production of Light Reading, the telecom industry's most important outlet for daily news and analysis. I'm Phil Harvey. I'm an editor at Light Reading. I'm slaving over a hot keyboard and making sure your news arrives fresh, fair, and in a reasonably tasty presentation. I am joined today by my colleague, Kelsey Zeiser. She's a light reading editor as well. She's also the head chef over at the 5G Exchange, and she is taking a broad selection of industry ingredients and preparing a 5G feast for you every single day of the week. Please do go check out her fine work over there. Our interview subject today is the great Haifa El-Ashkar. She is the executive director of managed services at CSG. You've probably heard of CSG. They've been around a while. They're about a 35-year-old company. Um, Their customers include the likes of AT&T, Charter, Dish Network, Comcast. They are a traditional billing company, or were a traditional billing company, and they've kind of evolved into this uh, customer engagement, digital monetization, digital payment solutions type of outfit. And they're very concerned with how mobile operators are, you know, digitizing and monetizing services. And in our discussion today, um, which is a bit of a longer podcast than usual, um, Haifa talks about four technologies, how these things kind of come into play in the service provider ecosystem. And then she talks about how they're all going to sort of intersect with one another and create new opportunities as they overlap and speed up the whole innovation cycle. In a weird way, she kind of goes and does a bit of a TED talk and uh, Kelsey and I just kind of put our feet up and let her go. (laughs) Not because we're bad interviewers, uh, although I might be, but um, because she really has to kind of get all of this out there in order to make the bigger point of how this stuff works together. So, um, Anyway, check it out. It's a bit of a different speed for us, but I thought it was uh, quite a fascinating discussion. And uh, you will hear all about it right after this break. And joining us today is the executive director of service strategy for and solutions for CSG. Uh, and uh, so welcome to the program, please, uh, uh, Haifa El-Ashkar. Hello, Haifa. Hi, Phil. Great to have you. And you're joining us from Sydney, Australia, right? Correct. And it's tomorrow already. <laughs> That's right. It's already tomorrow. <laughs> I said something before the interview started uh, uh, because I wasn't sure if uh, what time zone you'd be calling in from. And so uh, since it's uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday, it's already Thursday where you are. And I'm just glad we uh, were that much closer to Friday. That's that's all I can say. <laughs> um, let's see. Also on the line uh, with us, uh, as ever, is uh, Kelsey Zeiser, and she is uh, only one time zone away from me. Hey, Kelsey. Still, still Wednesday over here. Last time. It's I checked. still Wednesday. Yeah, I know. We're, yes. we're, we'll get there. We're, we're working on it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, Haifa, we were going to actually meet and talk at Mobile World Congress about how mobile network operators are uh, changing as businesses. But uh, since we had a bit of an interruption with a, a worldwide virus scare and all those things, um, let's let's have it out now. Let's 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 have a discussion about. Uh, uh, the kind of changing world of telecom. Um, I guess the, the, a place to start would be uh, to talk about technology trends. Um, what sort of trends do you think are possibly um, disrupting, changing, or even posing a threat 
to what we would consider a traditional connectivity-driven um, mobile uh, business or telecom operator business? Uh, that's a very good question. And um, to be honest, I, I'd probably just want to maybe clarify or paraphrase that I think, you know, all technologies and all trends, uh, you know, hold both opportunity and threat with them. And, and I think that uh, the reality is uh, a lot of companies and a lot of MNOs can see, you know, um, potential opportunity and potential threat in each technology. But um, one of the things that um, we've been doing and, and looking at, and it's something that I think we in CSG are unique, you know, are, are uniquely positioned to do, is mm -hmm. to look across um, trends and technologies, both in terms of at a market and industry level, but um, and top down, but then to also um, work with our customers, you know, bottom up in terms of what's specifically happening in their space. And the the thing that we we do is we don't just see trends, we don't just notice and and you know and and you know uh, look at the facts behind those trends but we connect trends and we look at the implications of when multiple trends converge and collide and what happens and i think that's where the th the bigger threat is particularly for mnos because if you if you think about you know the last um, wave of technology um, social and mobile and analytics and cloud each one of those was a very powerful technology and carriers saw each one and, and tried to adopt to each one but the real disruption was when the four collided and converged and you know what i call the perfect storm um, you know the smartphone adoption um, with the, you know the rise of social media um, the over-the-top players coming in um, using mm -hmm. the cloud and the, you know the, your your public clouds to launch you know agile rapid um, businesses and it was the combination um, that really drove significant digital disruption and led to disruption everywhere not just with the MNOs and and I think this time round, um, you know, there are, again, a, a bunch of technologies that each one in its own right is powerful, each one carries threat and opportunity, um, but it's the culmination um, of them that's going to drive the disruption and create a, a new set of opportunities and a new set of threats. Mm, okay, so it's not just it's not just one particular trend by itself, but it's sort of it maybe is more about when these things arrive and how they arrive um, as to what their what their effect would be on a business. Correct. And and I call it, you know, the perfect storm or the intersect of things. Um, the intersect of things in this particular case is very, very specific to to this um, to this storm, um, because uh, in this particular storm, um, the, the technologies you will recognize as powerful in their own right. And in this particular storm, it actually picks up where the last storm left off. So the, the, the smack, the social mobile analytic cloud storm, you know, led us to a digital world and the world of IoT. And this storm, you know, picks up from that last storm and, and is, you know, is being powered in the first instance by the rise of IoT. And so if in your head, 
you can start drawing kind of a picture of technologies. You'll know, you know, at the top left hand, you'll draw kind of a, a cloud around IoT and, and you'll start, and, and the reason why it starts there is in its own right, there's an expectation that it's going to power, I think IDC believe, you know, 41 billion devices by 2025. Mm. And most of those devices um, in reality are going to be things. Now, the thing with things is really in, in MO talk, that's machine to machine. And, you know, machine right. to machine has kind of, you know, um, been key to MNOs even before IoT became a thing. They were already, you know, working on machine-to-machine -machine, um, capabilities. But the interesting thing about machine-to-machine -machine and IoT and the explosion of the number of devices is when you think about the carrier's technology, um, you know, in order for uh, a, a service to consume the network, it needs to be authenticated. And so we have this concept of, of physical SIMs. But when you think about thousands of streetlights and parking meters as those things that are now, you know, connected and, you know, and interacting, it would mm -hmm. be so inefficient to have physical SIMs in them, um, both from a, a cost and a maintenance perspective. And so that tech, that IoT cloud on the left-hand side, and specifically that machine-to-machine -machine, um, category, it drove and actually the birth of eSIM came from the carriers themselves. So the need to find a better way to you know, um, to manage those thousands of streetlights and those parking meters without physical sims was born from the need that the carriers had for machine to machine, and so if then on your right top hand you draw a cloud around eSIM, that is, that's quite a well-known technology right now and one that all carriers you know not only understand but help drive, but right. the interesting thing about that one is that while it started um, as a technology to make it easier and better for machine to machine to communicate and for things to communicate, uh, I guess, you know, digital leaders like Apple and Google saw more in it and they saw the opportunity to take that same eSIM and put it in your smartphone. Now, the thing is, once you have an eSIM in your smartphone, um, the, 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 the strength of that eSIM or the benefit of it for us as consumers is that I could now have a smartphone and I could have multiple vendors um, on on my single eSIM. So I can have a plan from AT&T, a plan from Verizon, a plan from T-Mobile, and I could have, you know, multiple plans, you know, some for data, some for voice, and I can power multiple devices from this eSIM. And that's fantastic for us as consumers, giving us complete flexibility of choice. But the issue is as a carrier, it means that they're more susceptible to churn than ever before because your ability to move between plans and carriers is going to become so much easier. Um, and, and it's, you know, and that stickiness is going to, you know, dissolve further. So carriers rightly so never really anticipated putting it in a smartphone. But when you've got Google and you've got you know, Apple now, um, you know, driving, and I think the expectation from Ovum was that in the next few years, there will be 600 million smartphones that are eSIM enabled on the market. Um, that, you know, 
the ECM took a life of its own and, and shifted um, to the consumer world and the smartphone. But so you have now IoT powering this notion of, you know, this technology um, called eSIM, eSIM now taking a life of its own and now becoming more than just about devices, becoming, you know, um, equally about um, the consumer side of it with the smartphones. And, and now you start to think about it practically. The, the reality is if you're going to have a plan from T-Mobile, a plan from Verizon, a plan from AT&T, when you have to engage with that carrier and you've never engaged with them before, the reality is they need to authenticate you and they need to know you are who you say you are before they right. give you a, an eSIM, you know, to actually then allow you to, to you know, use the network. So mm -hmm. the, the reality is then you're physically going into a, a store or somewhere you know, with your paperwork, with your ID to sign up and become a customer. And so the whole notion of eSIM where you have that, that you know, that mobility and that flexibility to move around kind of slightly gets hung up. But when, so, um, so carriers who are kind of at the forefront of this are realizing that to acquire customers, you've got to make that activation process much more easier for customers to join you. And so now, while IoT kind of drove eSIM, eSIM is driving the need for digital identity so that instead of taking, you know, a few days or a few hours to sign up, you can do it, you know, in, in minutes and, and quite easily from the comfort of your, your phone. And mm -hmm. And, and so now you're looking at digital identity, um, you know, coming through your, your smartphone, but now digital identity in itself has become a powerful thing because identity management is no longer about, you know, passwords and, and IDs or even, you know, passports and, and licenses. You know, it moved to the world of biometrics and now it's moving towards the world of digital footprints as a more secure way to truly identify you are who you are. So digital identity is becoming a lot more comprehensive um, to, to securely identify you. But while eSIM started with things and, and then, you know, to, uh, broadened its footprint to include smartphones and humans, digital mm -hmm. identity started with humans and now is actually encompassing Things. So imagine your smart car pulls into your house. It wants your garage door to open for your car, not for the car you know, next door. And so right. now your car and your garage need to be able to authenticate that you are who you are before your garage door opens. So now identity is broadening beyond humans and businesses to actually devices and things. So now eSIM has kind of pushed the need for digital identity, you know, further than what digital identity in its own right, you know, um, required. But with all of these kind of, you know, these technologies happening, what you're starting to see is, you know, what, what are back-end technologies like eSIM, like digital identity, and really security-driven technologies, the reality is they're being pushed to the forefront by customer experience. You know, the eSIM in your smartphone is to make it far more convenient for you to have you know, freedom of choice. The digital identity is to make it quicker and easier for you to, to sign up 
to new plans with carriers. And as we move in, in this digital world and, you know, um, and, and we elevate the experience, the one thing that, that's become top of mind for everyone and every entity is the security of that information, not in terms of verifying you or authenticating you, but where that information is stored and how vulnerable that information is um, to being hacked. And um, I think it was Equifax in the US, um, this, the incident that happened, you know, um, the only yeah. in a couple of years ago, September 2018, I think, or 17. Yeah, I think it was 18. Yeah, they, they, they boy, they, they really stepped in it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 147 million Americans' data was compromised. I mean, that's practically half the population. And the most yep. interesting thing about it was they did it across, you know, over 76 days, right, um, across 51 databases, and, and no one was even knew that it was happening. This was all uncovered in the post-mortem. Um, but the, and the reality is that um, now, how you store your data, where you store it, is just as important as when you access it. And so, um, it, digital identity now is pushing um, the need for a more decentralized authentication model so that it's less liable to be hacked. And so now, on the bottom right-hand corner, you've got digital identity as a technology powering another well-known technology, blockchain. Um, you, you know, you, hmm. you, you probably had your, yeah, you know, had your head in the sand if you hadn't noticed so many people and so many organisations talking about blockchain over the last four, you know, that last few years. But now with digital identity pushing that boundary, um, you've got blockchain adoption, you know, being, you know, um, uh, pushed even further, and you now have, you know, countries adopting blockchain at a country level for citizen identity. You know, the UK, Canada, Kenya, you know, Argentina, all examples of countries that are adopting blockchain at a country level. Um, and the interesting thing is when a country adopts blockchain, so now you have blockchain on the bottom left-hand corner, um, you know, when a country adopts it at that level, um, it's now created the foundation and the base for a true smart city to take off. So blockchain in itself then basically gives more power to a smart city and a smart city is going to drive more IoT solutions. And so now we get into this self-fueling cycle because a smart city is going to power more IoT, which is in the top left-hand corner. IoT is going to power more eSIM. eSIM is going to power more digital identity down to the bottom right-hand corner. Digital identity is going to push us more into blockchain and blockchain is going to push us back up into IoT. And the, the if, you know, I, I think if you step back, IoT, eSIM, digital identity, blockchain, powerful technologies, each in their own right. You know, we, we hear a lot about them individually, but now what we're seeing is a self-fueling cycle. And this self-fueling cycle, one of the biggest impacts of it is that it means it's going to move and happen a lot faster than a lot of people thought or expected when looking at the individual technologies. Oh right, yeah. Because once it once it all starts to feed off of one another, then then it gets momentum because every single 
uh, every single advance in a service or something like that is going to is going to spur um, more progress. And like you said, I think smart cities is a great example because that that is one area that we're kind of sitting around waiting for it to take off. But when it does take off, it's going to be a massive consumer of both bandwidth and all kinds of other digital services. Um, you know, but 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 they haven't really unlocked it just yet. You know, just um, but, yet. Yeah, there, there 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 seem to be a lot of a lot of really interesting uh, uh, projects going on right now, and there's some some uh, what I'll call like little little fires burning, but that but that, but it hasn't really um, taken off. But it doesn't seem like it's going to take very long either, especially with like with what you're saying it, it, as those technologies kind of feed upon themselves and uh, gather momentum. Uh, when we come back, let's talk about how this uh, this perfect storm of technologies is going to affect a mobile operator and what changes that might make in the uh, telco, cable, or just generally service provider business. We will be right back on the Light Reading Podcast. Finley is the uh, the official dog of Light Reading. Kelsey adopted a dog. We, we signed him up as our uh, um, senior editor of uh, Biscuits, I think. And we gave him an official title and put out a press release. And that, of course, caused a lot of head scratching in the, in the mobile industry. <laughs> but, uh... Welcome back to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm Kelsey Zeiser, and we're joined by our guest today, Haifa El Ashkar. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kelsey. Good to be here. Yeah. So we, we started with a really interesting um, conversation in the first half about the intersection of all these different tech trends, and you painted a really good visual for us of how they all um, interact and, and influence each other. And uh, what are your thoughts on how blockchain and eSIM and IoT and um, digital identities, how will these different things transform telco and mobile operators' business models? Um, what what kind of things do they need to rethink to keep pace with all these new technologies? So um, I, I think in the last um, part of the call, we, we, we discussed that, uh, you know, in with each of these technologies and with the storm, there's always opportunity and threat. I think the reality is there's equal amount of opportunity and threat. Um, and it's all going to center on customer experience and and cost. Um, you know, in the past, you know, there was a lot of talk about you know any device, anytime, anywhere. And you know, Netflix gave us kind of that movement and that expectation that we should be we should be able to consume our service like that. But we always so we always came up with we, we called it the three any's any device anytime anywhere but now we have two more any's in front of it right we have um any any vendor um uh and you know um any vendor any plan any device anytime anywhere and it's those two new any's that create the opportunity and the threat um from an opportunity perspective um i i think a lot of carriers are seeing it because we we said this was a self-fueling cycle. Um, the eSIM adoption is actually moving a lot faster now than anyone anticipated. You know, over you know um, uh, re uh, forecast from 600 million to 900 million um, smartphones with eSIMs. Digital identity GSMA claims 800% growth expected in the next five years. Um, so we're, we're set, certainly seeing the self-fueling cycle effects and carriers themselves. Um, um, a year ago, 
there was a lot of questions as to whether carriers would ever really enable, um, you know, plans for eSIM smartphones. And a year ago, there were, I think, 14 carriers across 10 countries. But fast forward a year, so now, uh, you know, only a month ago, a month and a half ago, there were 115 carriers across 52 countries who had adopted this. So clearly there's opportunity. But, um, and uh, and the the opportunity is to capitalize on that customer experience, giving empowering your customers and creating stickiness with them um, uh, through that so that your customers choose to stay with you for, you know because you're giving them what they need rather than them having to go somewhere else for it um, but at the end of the day, it's always going to come down to cost and customers now are far more cost conscious than, than ever before. So that's that's where the opportunity and the threat lies because um, while your carriers can enable all this, um, the reality is if you bought a plan from T-Mobile, if you bought a plan from AT&T and if you bought a plan from Verizon so that you had seamless coverage in the US, um, uh, while your eSIM allows you to place all of those three vendors and those different plans all on one phone, the reality is it's costing you a lot because you're now buying three plans um, uh, to do this. So the opportunity will be for potentially aggregators to come on top. And the aggregators will actually, instead of you having to buy an eSIM for that, you know, that coverage in the US or to when you go overseas to another country having to buy a local eSIM from Telstra in Australia, EE in the UK, they'll come over, you know, above, uh, on top of the carriers and give you the opportunity to buy one eSIM from them um, and as an MVNO, then give you access in 200 countries, give you access, you know, seamless access across, you know, the different carriers in the US with one eSIM. And, and, and to be honest, that's exactly what, you know, Google Fi is, is, is looking to do and is doing right, right. now. Yep. So, so, yeah. you know. I think I feel like I would definitely benefit from that. Just traveling abroad, it, you know, sometimes I forget to alert my carrier that I'm going to be overseas and then I have trouble connecting and, um, I remember one year at Mobile World Congress just on a search for Wi-Fi so I could call customer service <laughs> and yeah. get things sorted out. So um, having that ease of use in a number of different countries would definitely be a benefit. Oh, look, don't underestimate convenience. Um, you know, we call it right. customer experience, but at the end of the day, it's all about convenience. And consumers will pay slightly more for convenience um, than, you know, than necessarily um, what, you know, what they what they should. Like, I mean, if you bought a local plan from Telstra, it'll be cheaper than the rate that Google Fi will give you. But that convenience of not having mm -hmm. to worry about all that is going to be key. And that's why, that's where the big threat comes to the carriers is these aggregators who will come on top. And again, if if the aggregators and the carriers, so the MVNOs and the carriers, don't get cost and convenience right, um, there is this potential for, you know, to tap into the technologies, you know, not just eSIM and digital identity, but couple that with blockchain, add the gig economy trend, 
and the potential for uh, an exchange play that comes in on, on top of everyone, where the exchange then acts as uh, a consumer exchange where consumers can buy and trade data just like, you know, just like you do on eBay for other things. Now, th that is a bit of a far out kind of vision, but I can tell you companies like Dent Wireless, companies like KeepGo are looking at exactly this plan. So the, the threat is there, but the reality is when you take convenience and cost, it's all going to come down to commoditization of a wireless market. And at the end of the day, every carrier has been looking to their wireless sector as their growth market, yet this is the exact you know, uh, part of their business that's about to be heavily commoditized. No, oh, that's interesting because they're um, uh, they're the Google Fi example is a really good one because that that is the ultimate. Um, at first, I, I couldn't get my head around what Google was up to with that, but but having but understanding that they work with all these carriers and that all it is is just you know connectivity wherever you are and giving you the best you know rate plan for wherever whatever you're connected to that. That's what you said. It's the ultimate inconvenience, and that's what ultimately what consumers want. Um, how do uh, it, it's interesting because a lot of telcos aren't known for being um, flexible businesses. Um, so I, I guess I have a maybe a two part question. The on the one hand, I'm wondering like what's holding them back. You know, um, is it their technology or is it their business model or is it their thinking? And then on the other hand, I'm I'm curious about other industries and, you know, what what other analogies we sort of uh, that, that maybe you see um, when it comes to similar challenges, uh, you know, especially like mass commoditization. Uh, again, an, another really good question, and it, it's one that we gave a, a fair bit of thought to um, because, you know, as a company, you know, the, one of the things we CSG uh, look to do is solve our customers' biggest problems. So taking the time to understand their pain points um, and their business um, is, is very, very important. And so it's one thing to look at trends. It's another to interpret them, but then, you know, another thing to actually not just interpret them, but turn them into guidelines and, and visions. And um, I, I think, I, I wouldn't say that the MNOs are inflexible. I, I'd say that they're, they're very similar to lots of organizations, regardless of whether it's the telecom sector, the banking sector, the airline sector, or any sector. Um, I think that, you know, you have a business and you have, you know, processes and tools and people um, that are geared for a particular, you know, business model. And then when technologies change and you need to adapt the business model, there's there's a, an inclination, particularly in a commoditized market, there's a, um, a you know, a, 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 react, a quick reactive measure of we need to cut our costs um, and, you know, we need to simplify um, the experience. Those two things are the key things I, I'd focus in on in a commoditized market um, is the need to cut costs and the need to focus on the experience. And I think if you, you take a look at the the airline industry, um, it's one that we can actually draw a lot of good lessons from. Because if you take a look at it, and let, let's kind of rewind the clock, where it's 1960 now, and Pan Am 
is the number one airline in the world, right? Their, their tagline is the world's most experienced airline. You know, this is a company who <laughs> revolutionized air travel with the first wide-bodied carrier. You know, they right. were profitable from, with like more than a billion dollars in cash reserve, right? So this is 60s at the height of their, their business, you know, and this is a company that and I, 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 I'm fascinated by this. Not being an American, I, I you know, um, I obviously didn't go through the pandemic experience myself, but I, I hear things how they offered the gourmet meals, designer uniforms for their staff, you know, multilingual crew, top oh, yeah. end entertainment. They had this thing where they would actually, if you landed in JFK and you had to fly out of Newark, they didn't take you from JFK to Newark with a bus. They actually helicoptered you from what? JFK. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's also, just... you had me at, at gourmet meals. I'm like that gourmet and an airline don't gourmet meals and an airline don't really go together. Right. But I, I know read... there, there was a time when they had good food. <laughs> Look, I read an article where this guy says, my grandmother told me that wherever she was in the world, the minute she, she jumped on the pan, the, you know, she boarded the Pan Am flight she felt like she was already home. And it was that that epitome of luxury and the poster child of, of air travel. So this is Pan Am, heyday, 60s, leader. And then the late 60s, early 70s, you get the the you know the introduction of the low-cost airline. So the, the beginning of commoditization of the airline industry. And what's really interesting to see and and you know to quickly kind of get to the point is that uh so you know so these these low cost airlines enter and then you fast forward and 1991 pan am is no longer around they declare bankruptcy and you know, Kelsey, um, the the latter experience is very much the opposite of the earlier experience. Um, you know, people they start handing they, out bags of peanuts. And, well, they say you can't even get those because everyone's allergic. But well, they, they started cutting costs, right? And they mm -hmm. said that it translated into inedible food, inoperable entertainment, tired crew, late flights. And all of this eventuated then in, in bankruptcy, right, as they cut cost. Because what they did is they cut the cost and they reduced the experience. Now, that, that was the number one airline. But what I want to really focus in on here is not what happened to Pan Am, but what I want to do is focus on two incumbents who also started around, you know, the same time Pan Am. So I think Delta was 1924 and American Airlines 1930. So two incumbents who actually not only survived the commoditization of their industry, but today are seen to be clear leaders. So the most profitable airline in the world today is actually Delta, followed by the new low-cost you know, player, Southwest. Um, the highest revenue-generating airline in the world is American Airline. The highest market capitalization airline in the world is Delta. Delta and American Airline take out the number one positions in all three categories, and they're both incumbents who survived commoditization. And the most interesting thing we can learn when we look at them and contrast them to Pan Am, Pan Am cut costs. Delta, on the other hand, optimized cost. And what Delta did is they actually were the first to experiment with the spoken hub model. 
So they realize they can actually re-engineer their cost by, you know, uh, taking flights to hubs and then moving those flights to different spokes. And so they were able to reduce their cost in a smart way without reducing their experience. Now, the experience and the customer experience is, is key in a commoditized market because reducing costs should never ever translate into a reduced experience. A simplified experience and a reduced experience are two very separate things. Because if you have a look at the customer satisfaction um, rankings today, the number one um, airline when it comes to customer satisfaction is actually Southwest. So do not ever equate low cost to being low service, right? And the number two airline, or I think the number three you know, airline in the world when it comes to customer satisfaction is Delta, right? The two go hand in hand. And so when we talk about the commoditization and the threat to MNOs, yes, there is a threat, but there is also an opportunity to come out on top and how they optimize cost and how they manage the customer experience are gonna be fundamental to whether this is a threat and you become a Pan Am or this is an opportunity and you become Delta. I do appreciate the um, drink coupons I get in the mail from Southwest. So I think they're doing something <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Well, I think, I think it's, it's, it's part of it too, is that, you know, Southwest, I, I think the reason they, they're, they have a, a higher, uh, perception among customers too is is they did simplify everything um mm -hmm. one of the things i still knock american about is this this bizarre um cast system that they put their passengers in where they let priority passengers board first all of those people have outside seats and then they let everyone else board and those are all the people with middle seats and inside seats mm -hmm. and so and so you have this <laughs> the boarding process is this really ridiculous um titanic you know, model yeah, it's a really it's a really goofy um, process, and no one likes it, and it takes twice as long as all the other planes. When you mm -hmm. when you go to Lufthansa or Southwest or somebody else, they they all have different boarding uh, processes, but they're all a lot simpler and a lot easier to understand um, yeah. than, than Americans, which seems to be something that was like. Um, you know, dueling consultants came up with it or something like that. It's a, it's a really, <laughs> it's a, it's a really weird thing. It makes no one happy. And, 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 and I've, and I've yet to meet anybody who likes it, but, uh, but with Southwest, it's so easy. It's just like, you know, there's no assigned seat. You get mm -hmm. a number, you line up and you walk on the plane and that's yeah. it. And um, people are very like, it, it's, it's funny how respectful they are of, Oh, what's your number? Oh, I'm behind you. I'm sorry. Like people are, yeah. they're on board with the whole system and I think it goes back to Haifa your your comments earlier about balancing um, cost and convenience, and and sometimes we're even willing to pay a little bit more um, for convenience for being able to get to our seat easily, um, like you were referring to, Phil. So um, okay, uh, we we're short on time. Haifa, what's one thing if you could tell every mobile operator to do one thing? Uh, uh, tomorrow to make to make uh, the customer experience better uh what would that be as as unfair a question as as this is i'm, I'm <laughs> highly entertained by it 
<laughs> um, or drink coupons. No. <laughs> I, 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 I do think it's it's hard to to name the one thing, and that's the thing with convenience and experience. Um, it, it's about how it, it's about the entire journey and all the interactions. You know, a single interaction doesn't define an experience. But I will leave you with one thought. Southwest, okay. and, and this ties into not just the importance of cost optimization and a simplified experience versus cost cutting and reduced experience, but there is one other thing that Southwest brought to the table that I think is a very interesting dimension, which is culture. They actually believed that if their staff were happy, then their customers would be happy. If their customers would happy would be happy, they would fly more. And almost everyone they polled, you know, while they chose Southwest, 78% chose it because it was, uh, you know. A, 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 a low cost option, almost right. every single one actually said they just enjoyed the experience of interacting with the staff of, you know, the flight, just like you guys were talking. So I, I guess I'd just say it's not just about an interaction. It's about the entire journey. And that journey crosses over into the world of your, your staff and your employees and the culture. And that's, I guess, a whole topic for another day. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. We should dig into uh, uh, the culture of these companies and what's and how that's changed over time. And uh, so 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 there you go. You've you've already uh, given uh, uh, you've, you've bookmarked a place on our schedule. We'll have to uh, have you back on. Uh, but for now, uh, uh, we want to let you get back to things at CSG. And thanks so much for uh, being part of the podcast. Haifa El Ashkar. Thanks. Uh, thanks for being our guest. Thank you. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. Thank you. That is it. That's our show. Thanks so much to Haifa El Ashkar for her time and insights. Thanks to Kelsey for her quips and questions and queries and all that stuff. Uh, thanks to our production crew, uh, Pierre and Tien, as they are often left to uh, warm up the leftovers and make tomorrow's soup absolutely something delightful. Uh, thanks to you, dear listener, because if you weren't paying attention, we would not be able to get away with doing all of this at work. And everyone, please do tell a friend to subscribe. Let's get a few more people gathered around our table, and we will see you next time on the Light Reading Podcast.